great. Sorry, it's been a while since I did my last episode, February, and I take big gaps in between them. Um, so I'm on a different laptop this time, so I'm hoping everything goes well. <laughs> um, There's always that technolo- technological shift when you switch devices, right? Oh, there is. You know, I had um, I was using a MacBook because it's so much handier, and it went dead on me, and like wouldn't work for me there the last time. I was unplugging it yesterday and trying new batteries and all. wasn't happening. So I'm hoping this will come through okay. I said a little prayer before you came on there. <laughs> all right. Well, sounds good. Hopefully it works out. Great stuff. Well, look, this is episode 39. Um, my guest today is Steve T. Collis, um, who is a law professor, faculty director at Texas Beck Lachlan First Amendment Center of Law and Religion Clinic. Did I get that right? I knew there was going to be a pronunciation error there, was there? Actually, uh, I don't know. If, <clears throat> maybe it's because you're from a different part of the world, but you're the first person to actually pronounce those names correctly. No way. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I have a couple of notes there and I was going to introduce you. I wasn't going to give that sentence a stab. I had had it whittled down to faculty member at Religion Law Center. And I said, you know what, I'll give it a bash because that uh, Beck Lachlan, are, it's quite Irish sounding, you know. So I said, I'll give it a bash. And luckily I, I came through with it. Yeah. So lot, most Americans uh, pronounce it Laughlin. They always get it wrong. They, they want to say Beck Laughlin instead of yeah. Lachlan. So you're the first one to, to get it right. Where did that name come from? Well, it's the, they're, the, they're the people who endowed my center that I direct here at the University of Texas. So uh, his, one of the donors' names is Sam Lachlan. Uh-huh. And, and so the other one's name is Doug Beck. So the Beck Lachlan First Amendment Center. Yeah. The, the Lachlan will be an Irish, um, well, derivative anyway. There's like Lachlan's town only 20 minutes away from me here. So maybe that's why. Maybe there's some origins there. That's great. Well, I'll, I'll let him know about this. He'll get a kick out of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but look, we're talking about your new book, which I'm uh, pleased to have a copy of here, which I got last week reading away. So uh, Praying with the Enemy. That's the book. It's great. I'm really uh, enjoying reading this. I haven't got through the whole lot of it yet, but um, it is a great story. So um, I guess we're talking about that today. It's not your first book, I know. Yeah, no, it's my third, my third book uh, published with this publisher. Uh, my first stab, though, at historical fiction. It's mostly a true story, but I did fictionalize some of it, mostly for narrative purposes and, and to be able to keep it flowing at a pace that I felt would keep readers engaged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can definitely tell that from the get-go. It's not your first war theme book, though. You had that uh, Immortals. Was that, um, I know, a different, obviously, completely different story, but is there some kind of lineage with... Um, your family members' ancestry uh, serve time? No, it's a total coincidence that they both happen to take place in war. Um, I, uh, I, that's not something that I set out to do. In fact, it makes me a little bit nervous because I don't have any type of military background. And, you know, readers who do will get very skeptical very quickly if you put details in there that aren't accurate when it comes to talking about the military. Or in the case of my previous book, The Immortals, when it when you when you when you're talking about you know ships and the navy and whatnot, so it does make me nervous. What the the common bond in both of these stories for me was people acting on their faith, um, people bonding with folks who are very different from them without sacrificing really who they are and their you know their core identity. Those are those are themes that are important to me as I'm searching for stories. The fact that these two books happen to take place in wartime uh, is more coincidence than anything. Yeah. And it's funny because you, when you read your law and religion, it's quite, um, 
it's two things that generally you don't read together. Um, it actually sounds a bit like my own routine. I'm in the, the court service here in Carlo. Um, and I'd be, well, this is my religious pastime, I guess. But um, how, did, how did you come to amalgamate, become a spokesperson for them two teams? For law and religion? Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, when I was in law school, I, I went to, to law school at the University of Michigan Law School uh, here in the United States, which is uh, one of our nation's top law schools. And I was very fortunate. I, I took a class on religious liberty law from a professor who happened to be the one of the world's leading scholars on the topic. And he was teaching this class. He wasn't there very long at Michigan, but um, I saw the class. I thought it might be interesting took it on a whim and I just fell in love with the subject matter. There was just something so rich and interesting there. This, this, I mean, really at root, the question is how can we craft laws in a way to allow people of very different religious beliefs to coincide alongside one another and to thrive alongside one another? How do we, how do we make that work? And in the United States, especially, we have the most religiously diverse society in the history of humanity. How do all these people live alongside one another in peace? That's the question you get at in this area of the law. And I just found it so fascinating uh, that I've kind of been in the space ever since. Uh, so I just, I'm fortunate I took that class because without having taken it, it never would, would have even crossed my mind that this would be a space I'd be interested in. Yeah. And then, so that's the law side of things. But I also heard you speaking in a talk saying that as a young man, you would have been interested in different types of religion and you would have studied um, all different types of religion. So you had that, um, maybe not that religious background from your family, but you had your own um, interest there. Yeah, I think that's right. I, my family was not religious. It was kind of a weird mix of uh, atheists, lapsed Catholics, and I don't even know what to describe the third category, but certainly not nothing to do with organized religion. And uh, sometime in high school, I started to feel that there just had to be more to life than what I was experiencing. And that's when I started really searching out different religious traditions and really exploring everything from Islam to Buddhism to traditional Christianity, evangelical Christianity, Catholicism. I mean, I really spent a lot of time studying different religions, trying to find what I felt was uh, the truth or the, or the right path for me. And did you come to any conclusion yourself? I did for myself. I had a very powerful experience um, when I was 18 and I converted to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And um, I have been a faithful member ever since. I actually, the, the way I learned about this story for my book in Korea was I served a, a Latter-day Saint mission in Korea for two years. And that's how I got some connection with Korea, which eventually led me to discovering this story about the Korean War. But no, I had that I had that experience when I was 18 after nine months of studying uh, my particular religion. And it's been life changing for me, in all honesty. It really has set me on a path that I never would have been on uh, if not for having that experience. Just interested, is there a specific event when you say the experience and um, that happened a uh, kind of a metaphysical kind of your own um testimony sure so i'm a very you know it's funny i'm a very um analytical guy i tend to want empirical evidence for things so uh it's interesting that i have this side to me that is also willing to embrace faith as a scholar for example I'm very skeptical of any argument I hear that's simply based on someone's intuition or even just logic. I, I, my first question is, what empirical evidence do you have? 
But there's also a side to me that is willing to embrace things on faith. And in this particular instance, I had studied about uh, my church and its teachings for about nine months. There were things about it that I was skeptical, but I had been challenged to really pray and ask if what I was learning about was true. Now, from my background, I had never really prayed before. And the notion of a of a being, a, you know, a, a form of divinity that would actually communicate with me was kind of a foreign idea for me. Um, but I, I was willing to take the challenge. I was willing to try and do it. And I had this experience, this would have been when I was 17, almost 18, where I was sitting at home one night and I, I just had this powerful wave flash over me and I felt like I saw in my mind's eye what my life would be like with this religion I was studying, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and what it would be like without it. And what I saw with it was a life of warm relationships and strong family connections and um, you know, just real warmth is the way I can describe it. And what I saw without it was a life of worldly success, but a lot of cold relationships and, and cold family relationships. And it just occurred to me right then, which of those two things I wanted. I wanted the warmth and the loving family relationships. And so I made a commitment right then uh, to be baptized and join the church. Wow, that's amazing. And have you found once you made that commitment after that experience, your personality started changing in certain ways? The only reason I'm asking that is because when I know uh, I had my own testimony where straight away when these things become important, um, other things become less important and you start refocusing. Did you find that similar? Yeah, you know, it's funny, actually. There's a funny story about this. So I was talking with my my mom some years later and she says, I don't know what happened to you. You used to just make all sorts of stupid decisions. And then right around the time you were 18, you just had this shift and started making really wise choices that <laughs> I tried. You know, for me, it's like obvious. I had that conversion moment and I started changing. And in my view, I started seeing things uh, much more clearly, you know, the world more clearly. And that helped me make better decisions. But I always thought I always thought that was funny. I, I don't know if that was a compliment or an insult from my mom, but it's always <laughs> been a humorous story for me. And did your mom know that you went through that experience? Oh, yeah, yeah. They were uh, n neither of my parents uh, made the same decision for themselves, but they were supportive. They came when I when I, you know, when I was baptized and have been supportive ever since. They were supportive of me when I was serving on my my mission for two years in Korea. My son just left my oldest son just left on his mission uh, to Buenos Aires, Argentina. And my parents are still very supportive of him. Um, you know, they have not seen to want to make the same decision, but uh, each of us has our own agency to make those choices for ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's um, that tangible force sometimes you feel working in your life um, that sometimes it's hard to tell people, to explain to people, you know, when you know people want to hear, well, why do you believe in such a thing? And they want to see evidence, like you said, empirical data. But this is one of these things that's kind of metaphysical or spiritual. It's personal. Um, I find it anyway, you know, um, that if you have a calling, sometimes your whole being goes against you if you don't answer the calling to a certain extent. But, but you're calling to Korea. Um, I, I do. I know it's it's the place where the book takes place, but um, it's location. But can you tell me a bit about your mission over there? Sure. And, you know, real quickly on the, on this question of um, the metaphysical, it's interesting. I don't have a problem separating what I do professionally, where I, where I require empirical data and research with my personal 
I don't have a problem separating that from my personal spiritual life. In other words, if I'm going to make a claim as a scholar or something, or as a legal advocate, I feel like I have to have data and empirics to back that up, right? For my personal life, however, I don't mind operating on faith and following a more metaphysical path. There are some people that really struggle with that, but for me, it has not been an issue at all. And uh, quite frankly, I would argue all, all to the better. It's really helped me navigate those areas of life where sometimes there isn't data, right? And and we have to we have to go by by our feelings and gut and a more spiritual sense that we have. So uh, your question about Korea. Um, you know, most people don't know this for Latter-day Saint missionaries. Uh, it's it is not it is not a vacation. It's not kind of like, oh, we'll do some casual service one day and then go to the beach the next. It's a very monastic lifestyle. You uh, you're up every day at 6 a.m. studying scripture, praying, studying. If you're in a foreign country, studying the language, studying gospel principles with uh, other missionaries that you're with. You're always paired up. You do that in the mornings, you spend a little bit of time exercising and getting ready, and then it's a full day until 930 at night of service and teaching and uh, trying to find people who are interested in the message. And then at 930, you come home dead tired, collapse, you know, say some prayers, collapse, go to sleep, start the next day and do it all over again. And that's basically your schedule for two years, very disciplined, no, um, no watching, you know, movies, no listening to non gospel music. Uh, it's very much trying to stay in tune with the spiritual side of the world for two years. So it's a, it's a different experience for sure. Yeah. Sounds, sounds exhausting in a way, but also it sounds very meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is exhausting, but it's kind of this promise you find, right? In, in the Christian world, we call it the Christian paradox, this notion that as you lose yourself uh, for Christ, you find yourself, right? And I think that's what many missionaries experience, this idea that as they're, as they're losing themselves in the service of others, they're finding a deeper side of themselves that's far more important. Yeah, it's true. But I find some people, um, like I live in Ireland, and it's, it's obvious it has a heavy Catholic background um, culture you know it's all intertwined it it's, with society changing at the moment with social media and all that a lot of people don't practice it i i personally have always been um someone who'd say i'm a christian um i am that way for the last five years since i had my own experience because when something when i had my experience i said right there's something here and i need to go back to the word and because i don't agree with the church on this or that so I need to go back to what was actually said. And I start digging into um, biblical um, scholars, um, you know, uh, Bart Orman, and even looking at guys like Lee Strobel and um, having um, Jay Warner Wallace on and uh, people like that, um, just to find out what were the empirical data to back up. Because I found people got angry when they found out that I'd become Christian, you know, and people around me and they were, you know, and I, I didn't have the defense to put up against them. I just said, well, I know this happened to me and this is happening to me now and it's tangible and I feel it and it's making a big difference. So I really need to go back. And when I went back and studied it, I realized there was mountains of data for this, but I still couldn't condone certain things the church had done. So I found myself in a rock and a hard place. Lately, I have been feeling a calling back to the church, but I don't know which church or where to go, you know, around me. 
what is a big difference between Catholicism, if you don't want me asking, and the Church of the Latter-day Saints? Is that the same as Mormonism? So it is the same as Mormonism. Uh, that was a pejorative nickname given to the church in the early 1800s that the church over the years has had kind of a back and forth relationship with. At times, uh, the church has tried to embrace it to kind of take that nickname over. Uh, and then in recent years, has the church leadership has decided, no, look, the name of the church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and that's what we're going to call ourselves. Mm -hmm. So um, it is the same. You know, the, the primary difference, I would argue, between Catholics and Latter-day, or between Catholic doctrine and Latter-day Saints is um, there's much that is the same in terms of believing in Jesus Christ. Latter-day Saints believe that Jesus Christ has revealed more of himself, that God and Jesus Christ have revealed more of themselves than what is just available in the Bible, and that people can access that through other scriptures that describe their interactions with uh, humanity. So one of those scriptures is called the Book of Mormon. And then we also believe that, uh, which is, which is uh, a record of people in different places that had interactions with God and Jesus Christ. That's what we believe. And then um, the, other, the other primary difference, I think, is that we believe there is a, a modern prophet on the earth today, just like God called prophets in olden times, there's a prophet on the earth today uh, through whom he reveals his truths. And so we have some scripture that comes through that process. You can think of the, the prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as you might the Pope. There's a similar thought process there. Um, we also have a sim somewhat similar beliefs regarding priesthood authority. But if I understand Catholicism, correct me, and you, you push back on me if I'm wrong, because I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on Catholicism. Um, I, I think there's a belief that priesthood authority was passed from Jesus Christ through Peter and has continued on down all the way to the present day through the Pope. Latter-day Saints believe that that priesthood authority um, fell from the earth for a time and then was restored to the earth and that and it was restored to the earth when god called new prophets in the latter days in the modern era and then those prophets now have that same authority mm -hmm. that's interesting you will you know will i go back to try and find um the 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 early christian creeds and and things that led to the popes and i found it hard to find that and i i fell into you know some of the crusades and uh the Roman Empire taking over Europe. And um, I know we, we demand a lot of empirical data for our beliefs, but uh, or for other people's beliefs. But I know if you go to Africa, they can't believe that people believe in faith without seeing some metaphysical, tangible, you know, spiritual experience. And I think we're pulled, I think today's time is pulled too much away from, like my fear is that whatever the scandals have happened with the Catholic Church, People have tied it into their faith and now they're atheists because of that, where I believe the faith in Christianity is separate. Um, you know, you can be you can still read the Bible and you can still have your belief systems. You don't need to indoctrinate yourself, not, not indoctrinate yourself, um, but you don't need to take it all on. If you know what I mean, you know, you can still have your belief in your faith and, and pray um, without, you know, there's some, like. You know, it's hard because like everyone is Catholic all around me, but my family don't practice it. But um, and friends and newer generation don't practice it either. And I, I see that as a bad thing, really. Um, I've seen a clip put up by Jordan Peterson the other day calling 
Muslims and Jews and Christians all to come together and kind of unite together. And I thought it was an interesting idea. Um, I thought it was a great one because I know you advocate for religious freedom a lot as well, don't you? And is that, um, is that, that true, your clinic? Yeah, so the clinic we run at, at the University of Texas uh, represents people of all faiths and quite frankly, even people of no faith uh, on religious freedom claims. If they're facing discrimination because of their beliefs or non-beliefs, if they're facing government burdens on their religious exercise, if the government is favoring one religion over another in a particular situation, we, we represent people who otherwise couldn't find legal counsel to help them. And there are robust laws in the United States to make that happen. You know, and I, uh, what you're describing, <clears throat> this idea of people who are culturally of one religion, but they don't really have any deep faith, they don't really live it, you know, as something we see common throughout the Western world, especially. And then in the United States, what we're seeing is a lot of people leaving organized religion. But what's fascinating about it is those same people, upwards of 90% of them, still describe themselves as religious and or spiritual. In other words, you can leave organized religion for whatever reasons, but there are still hard questions you've got to answer about our existence, right? Why are we here? Where are we going? What's the purpose of life? You've got, everybody has to grapple with those or they spend their days mindlessly going through social media so they don't have to grapple with them. <coughs> Excuse me. But what I find is people are still asking hard questions and searching for truth and, and trying to find answers to this existence. And um, like I said, I, I think there's a reason you're finding many people, especially of younger generations with increased anxiety and depression and suicidality, you know, life without any meaning or purpose becomes much more difficult. It's absolutely true. I was going to make the same point. You know, um, I even had it written down that the social media kind of, you know, when you go to work and you, you do your things. And I think years ago, faith was more entwined in people's day-to-day -day life. Um, where now we're, we constantly want to keep busy. We can't constantly want to keep entertained. We can't be bored for a minute. I don't think people, half as many people even read a book now. You know, if you go home, you sit on the couch, the TV's on and your phone is on. And I don't think we're taking them times to think and reflect on the bigger picture really you know one of the reasons i like running sometimes you know you, you get to clear your head and you think about them things and you're out in nature but i found tremendous clarity i and i and i don't want to be someone who says i'm spiritual not religious because i'm definitely i definitely believe in the bible and um christianity and i pray every night and i feel a calling back to the church um even this week even today and i have to that's something i'm going through at the moment so, um, and I think people who say they're spiritual are people who, who are kept too busy, who know that there's something tangible and real going on, but maybe um, are, you know, some people replace God with mother nature, you know, and I think that's just another way of saying God really personally. Yeah. And, you know, I, your point is a, is a good one about this idea of we keep our minds so occupied with with television, with radio, with phones, with apps, with just streaming constantly on social media that I wonder if myself today, if I were a youth today, if I would have had that experience I had that led to my religious conversion, if I would have been disconnected long enough to be able to have that experience. I think too many people today 
they might claim, well, there is no, there is no God and there is no, there is no divine, there's no divinity communicating with me. But sometimes to experience that you do have to disconnect from all of these devices and stop all of that input and then listen and feel, you know, my own, my own personal religious belief is that there is a God in heaven and he does communicate and can communicate with us, but it's through very soft whispers and soft communication. And you're never going to hear that. You're never going to feel it. If your mind is constantly preoccupied with whatever's on your smartphone. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I have a book behind me. Uh, we're going to get to your own book, but uh, even silence is praise. And it, I, I was trying to question someone on is meditation Christian because I believed personally what I read, it wasn't something you should do as a Christian, but this person was saying you're just decluttering your mind so you can speak to God. It can be a practice, you know, it's how Jesus would have prayed when he ascended into the mountains by himself. It's, it's not an Eastern uh, Buddhist version of meditation, but it is that same act of silence and being at one with yourself, which will be quite healthy for you. And I think it's true, you know, um, that you know you do need to clear your head and i think you get a lot of clarity from it and that's why i think culturally maybe my grandparents might have just were afraid and had to go to church because the priest came knocking otherwise where it's amazing to me because i wasn't practicing and then i had this experience where now you know it's tangible and i'm following it because of the passion that's given me to do things like this in my spare time even you know um so look, I do want to get to the book uh, because it's a very good book. Sorry, you went down a loophole. I just thought it was very interesting. I wanted to hear your own testimony on it. Um, but Praying with the Enemy. So I have a copy here. Um, I'm not finished reading it. But could you give an overview of what this book is about? Sure. Well, there's the there's the physical story, which by itself is, is amazing. And then there's kind of the spiritual aspect to it as well. Um, the physical story is just unbelievable. It's an American fighter pilot whose plane crashes behind enemy lines. He snaps both of his ankles. He's captured. He's interrogated. Uh, he's suffering. And after many months, finally escapes. Uh, then there's a Korean, a North Korean communist or soldier forced into the communist army who's actually a closeted Christian. And there were more Christians in Korea than people realize at the time. Uh, he's forced into the North Korean army, doesn't believe in it. He's given orders to execute this American on site if they capture him. And when they when he he's the one who then finds the American and instead of executing him, realizes they might be able to help each other. And then the two of them have this miraculous escape. That's the physical story through through all of that. They're both dealing with their own crises of faith. The the American man is one who um, never really believed in God or at least not a God that interferes in the affairs of humanity. And then the Koreans, a Christian who's wondering if God has forsaken him and, and wondering maybe perhaps the communists are right, that there is no God. And then the third primary person I tell the story uh, through is the wife of the American. Her name was Barbara, and she was a very faithful Catholic who never lost faith. She always felt her husband was alive, and, and for her, it was very much this feeling she had. And so she stayed very devoted and, and prayerful during his captivity. All a true story. There are a few things I had to, like I said, adjust. But one thing I tell people is that the, the details that seem the least believable are probably the ones that are most likely true. Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, like it's, it's interesting as well, you know, trying to imagine, you know, straight from the get go, 
in these times trying to imagine launching out of a plane seat in the pitch black and getting captured by people who can't even plead with because they won't understand you. But this this idea of um, it bring, it reminds me of two parts of the Bible really actually. Um, the first probably being the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount. You know where um, God says you love your enemy. You know it's a hard thing to do, and you can imagine these two guys coming together through faith um, in the worst of conditions in a war. You know it's not like love thy neighbor. You know he left his being in my yard yesterday. You know it's it's this idea that we're meant to kill each other. We can't even communicate to each other, but they're finding each other true faith. But and the other part of of the Bible it, it reminds me of is the Tower of Babel, because it's supposedly you know where the God split people from the uh, all corners of the earth and they can't communicate any more true language. But yet these two guys find each other true to a language and become such good friends through it, making this daring escape. Yeah, yeah. And it's just amazing to watch kind of how they did it. You know, they found ways to communicate with one another. What's interesting is the American man uh, really wasn't sure what he believed yet, even when he got recaptured. But he had fashioned a little cross out of two sticks as something he could pray to, largely as an homage to his wife. And he was holding on to that when the Korean captured him and the Korean saw the cross and he thought, maybe we have this connection. Meanwhile, of course, there's a there was immense pressure on the Korean to execute the American. There were other soldiers there who were all putting pressure on him. And so he had to keep them at bay while trying to figure out how they were going to escape together and while they tried to communicate. And that, that was all hand signals and drawing in the dirt and <clears throat> trying to understand each other as best they could. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, you're talking about... Um christians being in korea back then more so and you know i i've read about this surge in christianity across asian you know uh, populations at the moment they say it's growing faster than the world population is at the moment uh, i didn't realize back then even it was so uh, tied in i thought they'd be you know buddhist maybe or maybe it's my ignorance to uh, think they were mainly other religions so korea is a unique country in asia um christianity found a foothold there in a way it didn't in other in other countries you know japan missionaries really struggled and, and many were killed but in korea they had they had a story of their creation that involved that if, that involved essentially something like the son of god coming down and becoming and becoming human and then that was the birth of the korean people so when missionaries came with this story of christ it resonated in a way in Korea that it didn't in other Asian countries. And so what I was fascinated about when I went there is if you look across the skyline at Seoul at night, what you'll see are hundreds and hundreds of illuminated crosses. And it's almost like being in the, in the Bible Belt in the south of the United States than it is being in an Asian country. Now, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of Buddhists and, and other Eastern religions as well, but uh, Christianity is very, very big in Korea in a way that it isn't in other places. Yeah, yeah. And you had contacts actually with these with um Barbara, I believe it is, isn't it? Barbara Miller to, to make this. I'd say that was amazing to a story, you know, of from the 1950s. Like it was 1950s, wouldn't it have been Korean more? And then to have these people who weren't there but were communicating. I know Barbara had this strong connection, and that's again going back to what we say is kind of tangible faith, knowing he's alive and you know, having that 
just pure belief. Um, but I'd say it was amazing to to get the exact stories from the people who knew them best. Yeah, and, and what's fun is both, so both of the two men passed away in the 1990s, but um, their widows are both still alive. Uh, Barbara just turned 97. Kim J. Pill's wife is similar age. They're both feisty, <clears throat> very sharp. Uh, Barbara's very sharp. What I loved about her is as I was interviewing this, I had to do the interviews during the pandemic. So some of it was a little bit difficult with the uh, Korean family, but with Barbara, I was able to visit with her in her home and she cracked me up because at one point she said, why would anyone want to tell our story? <laughs> and I just thought it was so funny because, you know, having lived it, I don't think she appreciates just how amazing it really is, but it really is a compelling story. Yeah, maybe as well, because it, it, we're worlds apart and that kind of thing doesn't happen. Well, I'm not going to say it doesn't happen here, but, you know, um, I guess she would live through um, that kind of hiding your faith when she was younger. Um, is she Christian uh, also? She's been a very devout Catholic her entire life. Oh, sorry. Yeah, she is, of course. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think, sorry, I, I meant the, uh, the Korean um, chapter. Oh, the wife, Korean, the Korean woman. Uh, yes, they were Christian as well. Um, and uh, what's fascinating, here's a cool story. So I was doing a TV interview the other day about three weeks ago. And um I didn't think anybody would be watching it. It was kind of in the middle of the morning here in the United States, the show that nobody would be watching. And then I had a book signing that night. And so I go to the bookstore and there's a lady waiting for me. She had seen my TV interview. She had actually served as a Latter-day Saint missionary in Korea in 1982. And she had actually met the Korean man in my book, Kim Jae-pil. Mm -hmm and had actually visited with him and talked about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she couldn't believe her ears when she saw me on TV. So she ran and got her journal entries and then waited all day to meet me at that bookstore. So she could tell me this story about how she met him. And she let me take pictures of all of her journal entries. It was the, just the most amazing thing. That's, that's amazing, isn't it? You know, it's a small world when you really think about, it, you know, how we yeah. come across these people. And I, I often, I, I see as well, that um board um was saying to his kids in the end you know there's there's meaning in everything you know and, and you believe that and that's that's an amazing thing for someone to say who had to break their ankles and be captured behind enemy lines and you know had to go through such a struggle but sometimes it's the way life is in a way as well isn't it you go you have to fall down hard before you can really see you know what life is made of and to, to pull out on top of it yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes those trials are where we truly find ourselves and, and where we truly find God, right? Yeah, yeah. And I guess it's where. Um, and are, are you thinking that, uh, do you tell the story to in your own work? You know, when you're working in the clinic, are you are you passing it around for, is, is there a takeaway um, point that you, you feel is important for today's society? Because I know uh, it's hard to communicate now. People are messaging more than they're even making a phone call and more than they're even meeting up um so communication and faith is really the keys to this message isn't it it is and and, and you know to answer your question i don't use i don't use this book or i don't use any of my books in my teaching uh, i focus mostly there on the legal analysis because i am a law professor at the end of the day so the focus is more on that uh what we do do though is we represent people of a wide variety of faiths everywhere from the amish to muslims to sikhs to 
Christians to Catholic. I mean, just goes, the list goes on and on and on. And by working with our clients, we learn about why their faith is important to them, even if it's very different from our own. Mm -hmm. I even have students who have no religious faith whatsoever, uh, but they come to appreciate the faith of their of their clients, and they appreciate uh, what I call sophisticated believers. Yeah. You know, the, the, these clients we have are not are not the caricatures that so many people want to make of people of faith. They're they're thoughtful. They appreciate evidence, um, but they like us have had crucial and important experiences that make their faith very important to them. And when government then burdens their religious exercise, uh, th that's, that's like crushing to their, the core of who they are and they need help. And that's what we do. Yeah. I, I want to ask you about that. Um, is there an agenda there being pushed? Do you think um, to take religion out of society? Like I know um, my son goes to um, an educate together school and it's all religions. But when I walk in, um, you'll see a small script about certain religions, but you won't see a cross anywhere. And I don't know why that bothers me, because I know it, it's I like that he's diversing with everybody. But I, I feel as though they pulled the Christianity right out of it uh, to make way for other things. But as well, it's only a small part. Even for my son had his communion recently, and he had to leave the school and do that through a parish where it used to all be done through the school. So it's like this agenda to take god out of everyday living do you feel that when you're talking about the government um oppressing certain religions or do you think that that is just certain religions that aren't maybe native to the country it's very country specific uh, i don't I, I don't feel like i can speak for countries really outside of the united states and canada which is where i do almost all of my work so having said that uh, in the united states at least we have something in our uh, federal constitution called the Establishment Clause. And what that has been interpreted to mean over the years is that um, government cannot establish any one religion as the state church. So in the United States, where we have a system of publicly funded and publicly run schools, it gets very complicated if you try to say you're going to allow religion in school. If you're going to allow, say, official school prayers or allow teachers to teach a particular religion, you immediately have fighting over whose religion that is going to be. So uh, where we have settled is that in our in our public schools, teachers are allowed to exercise their own religion uh, and students are allowed to exercise their religion. But neither is allowed to do that in a way that would coerce others into practicing religion with them. Right. So they can't force their religion on others. And of course, that's there are hard cases to figure out when that is happening, but an obvious case would be a teacher can't take a classroom of captive students and force them to engage in a Baptist prayer, mm -hmm. you know, at pain of punishment if they don't engage in it, that kind of a thing. We know you can't do that. And I think by and large that model has worked. Now, that said, there is no question in my mind that there is a segment of American society who would like to use public schools to secularize the student body and and i don't and that's not just me making it up i mean there are scholars who are honest and there are scholars who are not honest and the honest scholars explicitly admit and say yeah look my hope would be that we can get these religious kids into the public schools where they will then realize the folly of their parents way of life um, so you've got that component of the kind of secular side and then you have a reactionary component 
from folks who take their religion very seriously saying, well, if you're going to use schools to try to secularize my child, then I want more religion in schools. And those two sides are constantly battling against one another. Um, and in the United States, at least, what you'll find is there are a lot of people who take their religion very seriously, who will then pull their children out of the public schools and put them in private schools where they can get religion at school, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, so that's the dynamic we're constantly dealing with here, at least. Yeah. So I, I and, you know, it, it's, um, sorry, someone moved my screen. Yeah. You know, it, that's interesting to say that because it, you know, it is in them cases, that is religion separating people. You know, when people want to pull each other out of schools and people take this um, religion issue very seriously, even for people who are atheists, um, you know, they blame a lot of wars and atrocities on religion. And then you could say at the same hand, people blame the lack of faith on atrocities also, you know, where Nietzsche's famous words, God is dead and we'll never wash our hands from his blood. Um, and I, I, that's my um, worry on it. I know in Ireland, it's a lot different. It's a lot less diverse, although it's becoming more diverse now. Um, but, you know, I, I have been interested in, in this call to, when you're talking about your scenarios where you have different faiths and even atheists in the same room, you'd imagine you have to be careful what you say, but I guess they're there for a reason. Um, like, have you seen conversions in front of your own eyes when you're telling these stories? Um, have you seen arguments break out? I'd imagine it's a hostile situation or is it not for certain reasons? Well, generally it's not. I mean, I, I, let me let me comment on two things. Um, one is this idea of, you, so you're right, there's a lot of people who have this notion, I think it's a mistaken notion that religion leads to warfare. When I lecture about religious freedom, I often will, will cite that. I, I use a, a comic that I saw and it's got, it's got a soldier, like a picture of a Roman soldier uh, with his arm around a figure that looks like God. And he says, sigh, uh, and the God figure has the, the soldier has the, the label war, the God figure has the label religion, and the, the war figure has his arm around religion and says, ah, where would I be without you? Well, the reality is, uh, if you go back and look throughout human history, or even today, it is not religion that leads to warfare. It's a lack of religious liberty. What leads to warfare is when one group or another tries to use the power of government to force their beliefs on others or to oppress people with whom they disagree religiously. If you go back and look at all the religion wars, and I know in Ireland, the words Protestant and Catholic have a political meaning as much as they do a religious meaning, but take yourself back to the Reformation when we were just talking about two religions and all the warfare that came from that. You know, a lot of the theological disagreements that they had had to do with the nature of marriage, right? Celibacy of the clergy, uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation, uh, the, the Catholic practices of granting indulgences. None of those things inherently by themselves lead to warfare. What led to warfare was that both sides were trying to use the power of government to force their beliefs on the other side and oppress the people they disagreed with, right? So it's a lack of religious freedom that always leads to warfare. And that's why I enjoy what I do so much because I think it's so important. Now, to your second question of in a school classroom where, you know, you go to any school in the United States, you will find 
Protestants, Catholics, atheists, people of new religions, Hindus, Sikhs. I mean, people of all sorts of different faiths, all sharing the same room together. And generally speaking, uh, they get along just fine. They understand that they can be their own religion. School is not the place, school is not the vehicle to use to push their religion on others. Now, students can teach and proselytize each other as much as they want to, as long as they don't engage in trying to bully or coerce their religion onto others. But the teachers themselves have to do their best to stay neutral and just let the students live out their religious identities as they see fit. I don't know if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I know a lot of the disagreements in Ireland was, um, you know, people say, oh, them Protestants again. But what they were really thinking is those English again. It was a more cultural argument because a lot of people couldn't tell you the difference between Catholicism and Protestants. And a lot of people who say that aren't even practicing or even believers. Um, so, you know, there are even ways like that. But, you know, even get back to the school issues. Like, I, I personally, I am actually a creationist um, in my faith. And I believe, you know, God made man, like the Bible says. My son often comes home with um, things saying otherwise and teaching otherwise. And sometimes I have to realize, you know, do you fight that war at school or do you leave it? Do you just say your peace with your with your kids, what you believe in, and let them decide for themselves? Um, I know you're saying your son obviously has a lot of faith he's gone over to do his own mission, if I got that right. Um, but what's your thoughts on that? You know, the the default teachings being secular. You know, I uh there's a great saying I love, and it's it's prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. Mm -hmm. And you can spend lots of time fighting and arguing with other people about what your children are going to hear in schools, which I'm not saying is not a fight worth having. I, I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but in the United States, people, parents can get involved. They can be on school boards. They can try to get involved and have an influence on what's being taught in schools. But I think the primary focus first needs to be preparing their own children for what they're going to hear at school. And oftentimes I think about what are things I'm teaching my children that I know they're going to hear the opposite at school. I want to ensure I have taught them and prepared them for that long before they ever hear it at their schools. And I think too many parents are just getting blindsided. And one thing I often tell parents is, you know, pick your topic. If your children are hearing it for the first time, not from you, but from someone at school, then you've dropped the ball. You need, you need to be anticipating what they're going to hear and prepare them for it so they're ready for it and, and they can think through it critically. I think that's true regardless of whether you're, what your beliefs are, right? Prepare the children for the road and, and stop worrying about preparing the road for the child. That's worked really well for us. I find it works well for other families who do it. I don't know that I can tell you it's 100% guaranteed every time, but uh, it has worked very well for us. I think it's great advice because um, the schools seem to be, um, it's, I'm not saying all the schools, it's not a blanket statement, but um, certain parts of religion is just rounded up when you have, sometimes when you have a mixed school of different religions, they do an overview and you won't talk about that again for a month, where I think, the faith we're talking about, the tangible faith also, and historical faith, I think that's important. And sometimes that education has to be done at home. And like you said, not to be forced on, but to say, this is what I believe in, and this is you know my stance on it. And you're going to go to school, you're going to learn about everybody else's stance on it, and you can make your own mind up, like you said, but don't prepare the roads, you know. Um, and is that how you, is that 
what do you think amounts to your son also following his missions or has he become faith based on your influence? I'm, I'm sure it's, an, I mean, it's a lot of different things. Um, he's had his own experiences with God and we've encouraged him to seek those out, right? I mean, one of the most important things we felt was that he needed to have his own experiences from an early age mm -hmm. with God and build that foundation for himself so that other people couldn't shake it from him. His decision to go and, and give up two years of his life to serve as a missionary was entirely his own. It's nothing that we ever could have or would have tried to force on him. Um, and his decisions to be involved in religion generally have been on his own because he's had his own experiences with the divine. Now, some things we have done to try to help that is I think obviously you've gotta, you've gotta be setting the example, right? If you're, a, if you're a hypocrite, if you're not living it yourself, if you're abusive or engaging in the kind of behavior that turns them off, that's not going to help you at all if you're trying to get your children to follow that path. I also find we, uh, we had a rule in our home that our kids don't get cell phones until they turn 16. And then after they get them, they only get texting and uh, phone calls. They don't get social media or web browsing. And I sat down, in that case, it wasn't a religious principle. I sat down with all the research with my kids and I just said, guys, I'm finding more and more research that's showing young children having smartphones is leading to increased suicidality and depression and anxiety. I said, if I'm wrong here, and I said, how, why could I just, as a good parent, I can't inflict that upon you because all the research is showing that it connects directly to youth having smartphones and being on social media. So I just told them, I can't in good conscience do that. If I'm wrong, You'll go a few years more than your friends without having a phone. If I'm right, I'm saving you from a lifetime of heartache. And thankfully that has resonated with all of my children and they've been perfectly fine not having phones. But I also think it inadvertently opened them up to what you and I were talking about earlier, an opportunity to have experiences with the divine and with the spirit in a way that they might not otherwise have had. Yeah, yeah I think that's a great way of saying it as well. Yeah, because obviously they're, at an impressionable age and they're getting that time to spend away from each other and um, listen steve I, I really appreciate you coming on um, and talking about your book and being so generous with your time and i really enjoyed the conversation um about your own testimony and your own stories um and i really hope to, to finish the book i will finish the book i'm looking forward to it but i hope to see uh, more books in the future and uh, i might pick up the uh, immortals later on in the week as well all right. Well, thanks so much for having me. It really has been a delightful conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate that. And hopefully maybe we'll talk again in the future. Sounds great. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. All the best.